Well, I'm here, but I'm not gesturing very well with the right side. So thank you for your prayers. Uh, My shoulder is getting better. I don't know if I need surgery yet, but uh, after a while, I'll find out if I do. Um, Pavement is harder than shoulders. So um, that's what you learn when you fall down and go boom. Let's just say that you are a young man or a young woman, you're growing up in a Christian home, and you know, you're a sinner, we're all sinners, because we're descended from Adam, and from a very early age, you learn how to say, no, and you learn how to maybe kick and maybe deceive and snatch toys from your siblings and just to express your sin nature. Your parents love the Lord and they faithfully read and study and meditate on the word of God. They're involved in church and, and uh, they share the gospel with the lost and they strive to live for God's glory. Growing up, they have shared the gospel with you many, many times. They have taken you to church where you've heard the gospel many, many times. You've memorized verses, and uh, and so you've kind of gone along with the whole Christian thing. I mean, after all, no one likes to think of themselves going to hell. And when you're around a bunch of Christians, it's not very popular to say, well, I hate Christ. But really, you do. And so you just kind of blend in with the crowd here at church, and you take the path of least resistance, And in all intents and purposes, you're kind of your own little Pharisee. You've learned how to say the words and do the things that keep people off your back. You're you're a religious hypocrite. And maybe inside you know it as you grow older, but you don't really care. And at school, you kind of live one way around your unbelieving friends. And at church, you, you go back to being like a Christian. You're kind of a spiritual chameleon. And wherever your moral surroundings are, you kind of blend in to that. And as you approach college age, you become really more and more rebellious inside. You have your own ideas and desires and goals. And inside, you really say to yourself, you know, this Christianity thing is just a bunch of nonsense. I'm not going to deny myself the pleasures of the world all my life. I'm not going to waste all of my Sundays going to church and pretend to be something I'm not. Besides, Christians are a bunch of hypocrites anyway. And you're blind to the fact that you're the hypocrite. And maybe you graduate from high school and you're eager to get away from home and you've convinced your parents to send you to a school that's away. So they won't be hounding you and talking to you all the time about doing the right thing. And little do they know, but the college that you have persuaded them to send you to is really kind of known for its party atmosphere. And you decide you're just going to enjoy the sins of the world as soon as you can get away. You've convinced your dad that you're financially responsible and they've saved a lot of money and you convince him that you can handle it. You can pay your own bills. You can be careful with that money, which they have spent so long saving for your college. And by the time you leave for college, it is a dream come true. You've got your car. You've got control of a lot of money. You're away from your parents, away from church, away from accountability. You can do what you want, when you want, go where you want. And so you get a couple unbelieving roommates to share an apartment with. Then you begin to drink and maybe do drugs and party. And maybe you get a girl pregnant and she gets an abortion. You begin to look at the internet, whatever the filth of the internet is available, you soak your mind in that. You stop going to class. You quit doing homework. 
the teachers don't even know where you are. And by the end of the first semester, you have totally squandered all of that college fund. Your parents work so hard to build up. You're desperate. You try to borrow money from your party buddies, but they aren't going to lend you anything. You're broke. So you begin to steal. You lose your car in a poker game. Roommates angry because you won't pay rent, sell everything you own and kick you out. The bank has closed your account. You're in debt. Your credit cards are maxed out and the creditors are after you, but they can't find you because you're living on the street. Your cell phone's turned off and your parents are worried. So they hire a, a, a private investigator to try and find out where you went. He comes back with the gory and grisly details of your life. You have rejected everything you were taught, rejected everything they've tried to instill in you. You've squandered your college fund. You plunge yourself into debt, immorality, drugs, alcohol, gambling, and you're living on the street. And there's a part of you that kind of wants to go home. But your pride won't let you. You know your parents will be furious with you if you did go home. And so what's the use anyway? But you're thinking about your soft bed. You're thinking about those meals that your mom used to make and those Saturdays with your family and the peace that you had in your home. And it's just so much different than what you're now experiencing. You remember people at church who were always happy and kind to you and people who loved you enough to admonish you and rebuke you and tell you to do the right thing. And there you are, maybe cold and huddled up to a concrete wall in some dingy part of a big city and, and you're just kind of feeling sorry for yourself and all of a sudden, you don't really know why, You start thinking of Jesus and the gospel, which you really know from heart, all of a sudden begins to come alive. And it just dawns on you that Jesus died for you, that you are a sinner, that you are headed for hell, that you need Christ. You ask Jesus to save you, to fix up your messed up life. You confess your sins to him. You confess that you've sinned against your parents and so many others and you weep and you cry in repentance and repentance and joy just begins to flood your heart. It's it's like nothing you've ever experienced before. And there's only one thought that comes to your mind. Go home. Now, you probably recognize that. I just took the parable we're studying and just kind of updated it a bit. It's the parable of the prodigal son. It's one of three parables that Jesus gave in Luke 15 to confront and address the religious leaders who we learned in Luke 15, 1 and 2 were grumbling because Jesus was receiving sinners as if there was anybody else you could receive. There's only one kind of person and those are sinners. And so if you're going to receive somebody... That's all you can receive. But you see, the religious leaders saw themselves as righteous, not sinners in need of repentance. And so when they saw other sinners coming to repentance, they grumbled. They thought those people, because they're sinners, should be judged. And so Jesus tells three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin and the lost son. And in each of those parables, something valuable is lost, searched after, retrieved, and rejoiced over. We are in the middle of the parable of the prodigal son and have seen how the prodigal was lost to sin, suffered the consequences of sin, and then by grace came to repentance. Verse 17 says, he came to his senses. And when we repent and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, God we learned, is full of love and compassion towards us. As a matter of fact, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance in the first place. And then once we do repent, he just begins to give us so many great things that it's hard to even get a hold of. 
We've already looked at three of them. And this morning we're going to look at three more. You see, God has made promises that he will always receive and forgive and justify those who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus. And his promises are founded in his nature. He cannot lie. He must follow through. And so anybody who turns to Christ will be forgiven, will be received, will be forgiven. Not just temporarily, but for eternity, they will be forgiven. Not just a little bit, but all the way. And so look with me in your Bibles, and I'm going to read Luke 15, verses 11 through 24, and we'll focus on those last few verses this morning. Luke 15, verse 11. We read, and he said, a man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them, and not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses... He said, how be it my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and I will go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring in his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. And so from verses 22 to 24, I just want to look at three more kindnesses of God extended to sinners who repent so that all of us who have repented can rejoice and marvel in the love and compassion and grace of God. And so maybe those of you who have not will be drawn to receive Jesus Christ and the love that he extends to you so it was on that long dusty road home that the prodigal rehearsed in his mind and remember he was in a distant country we don't know which one so he had to go back he was poor so he had a long way to walk maybe days maybe weeks maybe months and all the way home he is reciting in his mind what he's going to say to his father he is destitute he is begging he's scavenging for food i mean he left real rich and cocky and proud with lots of cash and dress for success but now he is destitute he is humble he is clothed in rags maybe his hair is long and his beard is shaggy and he smells like pigs sin has nearly killed him and by the grace of god he's barely escaped Arriving in Israel, he soon steps foot in his father's land, the land that he despised because he wanted the liquid cash assets that his father would give him. He walked away from his land inheritance, which could only be given after the father's death. He hopes his father won't reject him. And he's hoping that at least his father will Give him a job as a day laborer. And little does he know, but his father is looking. His father is waiting and watching. And his father sees him on the horizon while he is a long way off before 
he could even be recognized. His father knows it's him. And it, his father feels compassion. And though it was not proper for men in that culture, he hikes up his robe. And he begins to run towards his son. And his son looks up and sees his father running towards him. And his father falls on his neck and embraces him and begins to kiss him over and over again. And overwhelmed with this unexpected loving response from his father, the prodigal kicks in and begins to recite what he planned to say. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father says to his slaves, and that's where we stopped last time. His father cuts him off in mid-confession. All he has to do is confess his sins and admit that he has sinned, and that's it for the father. The father doesn't want to hear any more. He cuts him off in mid-confession and begins to give orders to his slaves. And this is where we come to the fourth Kindness of God extended towards repentant sinners that God lavishes his grace upon them. Look at verse 22. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. You know, the poor often had just one set of clothes. I mean, you know, we in America, you know, we we have closets, of dressers of clothes. In a lot of countries, you just have one set. If you were a little more wealthy, you might have two. One you wore most of the time, and the other you would wear on special occasions, maybe to go to a synagogue or a special celebration. The rich, of course, would have more elaborate clothes, and they would often have a very nice robe. That robe would kind of display their wealth and their honor, kind of be a status symbol, you know, kind of like a king who maybe has a silk-lined red velvet Robe with, you know, spotted fur, ermine, you know, collar on it. That, that says something about him. That is his status. And that's what's being talked about here. The Greek literally reads, this is the first of robes. This is the father's own robe and he is giving it to the son, the prodigal son. The son that has sinned against him, sinned against heaven and squandered his wealth. And rejected the law of Moses. And yet the father quickly receives him. And when he tries to confess, he cuts him off and says, get my robe. The first of robes and put it on him. Isaiah 61 10 says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. The whole picture here is of the father receiving the son and clothing him with salvation, wrapping him with the very righteousness of Christ. Think about that. God's not angry. When we come to repentance, he's happy and he clothes us. Just as this father clothed the prodigal son with his best robe, so we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. A great picture of this is in Zechariah. If you Look at Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Zechariah has a vision. And in this vision, uh, Joshua, the high priest, is there standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan is also there to accuse Joshua. And what's very interesting is that Joshua was a sinner. Joshua was guilty, except for one thing. Listen to the vision. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this, looking at Joshua, not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments standing before the angel. And he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. 
Again, he said to him, see, I have taken away your iniquity. And clothed you with festal robes. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And who is the angel of the Lord? Christ. Joshua was a sinner, but because he had placed his faith in the Messiah, though Satan came to accuse him, what happened? His dirty garments, which represented his sin, was taken away from him, and he was clothed with the righteousness of Christ as Christ stood by. We read in Revelation 19, verses 13 and 14, that when the redeemed returned with Christ in glory at his second coming, Jesus is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God, and the armies which are in heaven are clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and they're following him on white horses. Jesus' robe is dipped in blood. That's the picture. That's the blood that he shed for us. But all the saints are white and clean. This is the righteousness of Christ given to unworthy sinners. I mean, this is hard to even believe when you know what a sinner you are, when you know how many times you failed God and how many times you've let God down to think that God would save you, that Christ would take your sins from you and then he would give Back to you in place of your sins, his infinite righteousness. But that is not all. Look at the middle of verse 22. The father says, and put a ring on his hand. Rings were symbols of authority. You remember what happened in the Old Testament when Joseph was fetched out of prison to interpret the Pharaoh's dream. He came and interpreted the Pharaoh's dream. And what did Pharaoh do? He put a ring on his hand. Why? To symbolize his authority. He was now ruler of all Egypt. And so the father says, put my robe on him and give him my ring of authority. Everyone is to know that we have authority as God's children. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will reign with him. In Revelation 3.21, there is a statement that is so incredible. It's, it's so grand that when you think about it, you almost feel like you're thinking about blasphemy. Let me just read it to you. Wrap your mind around this if you can. Jesus says, he who overcomes, speaking of believers, of repentant sinners... I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Think about that. You sitting down with Jesus on his throne In Revelation 20, verses 4 and 6, it says of believers at the second coming, they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years, and they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. You will rule and reign with Christ. You're not some day laborer. God doesn't save you and say, okay, listen, you're going to have to just do manual labor around me. Because you've sinned against me and I'm still kind of mad at you. And so I'll let you into heaven. But you're nothing. Quite the opposite. He says, come up here and sit down with me. Next to me on my throne and rule and reign with me. Paul in Romans 8:15 says for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out abba father so you're part of God's household and this is also symbolized if you look the end of Luke 15:22 the father also commands put sandals on his feet 
Well, the slaves didn't wear sandals. Sons wore sandals. This is a picture of you're not going to stay a day laborer. You're not, I'm not going to hire you as a hired hand. I'm restoring you. You're going to be my son. You're going to have authority. You're going to have position. You're going to have all the rights and privileges. Paul says in Ephesians 1 5, he predestined us to himself to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the kind intention of his will. Think about that. God adopting you. And when you're adopted by God, you get everything that Jesus gets. The, bl- the blood son of God, so to speak. You become brothers and sisters of Christ. When you look at the New Testament, believers are referred to as sons of the resurrection. They're referred to as sons of the living God, sons of Abraham, sons of day, sons of the most high, sons of the father. Twice believers are called sons of the kingdom, three times sons of light, five times sons of God, 11 times children of God. In 2 Corinthians six eighteen, God says to those who have repented and believed in Christ, and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord almighty. God almighty will have you be his sons and daughters. That makes you royalty. That exalts you about as high as you could be exalted. But you know, some people are fearful of coming to Christ. Are you fearful of coming to Christ? Some people just, they don't want to go to hell, but they don't want to come to Christ. Maybe they're fearful of leaving their sins. Is that you? You don't want to leave your sins. You don't want to give Christ everything. You don't want to be thought of as some sort of religious fanatic. And when you think of God, you're thinking, oh, that sounds scary. God will adopt you as his very own child. Is that scary? God will give you all the rights and privileges of of a son or, or a daughter. Is that scary? And you know what? God is infinitely rich. It's a better deal. It's a better deal than the world. God will give you all grace for all eternity. I mean, isn't that what Ephesians 1, 3 says? In Christ, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's what God will give to you. God will adopt you as his very own child. So you will be a son or daughter of God. But that is not all. Look at the end of verse 23. The father also orders and bring the fatted calf and kill it. Richer families would often take one of their There are cattle and they would isolate them and feed them grain and kind of fatten them up. They wouldn't let them range around, but they would feed them grain so that they would be extra tender and extra fat. And they would slaughter them for a very special feast. Now, when you kill a cow and you don't have refrigeration or a freezer, you invite the whole town. That's how it was. If you kill the fatted calf, it means invite everybody. Now think about that. God doesn't save us and then go, just stay in the closet. I'll peek in on you. You know, the prodigal, the prodigal wasn't saved and the father didn't say, okay, I'll let you stay in your room and you can walk around the house, but don't come outside because I want any of the servants to see you. Now I'll receive you back, but I don't want anybody in town to know after all you've done to me that I've received you back as my child. I'm not going to let that happen. No, that's not what God does. He invites the whole town. He invites the whole town to know this is my wicked son and I've forgiven him. He's still my son. He still has all the rights and privileges, and we're celebrating that he's back home. That's what God does. It's pretty amazing to think about this. When you look in the New Testament, it often talks about feasting with God. 
in the kingdom of heaven. We saw at the end of the well, middle of 14. Remember what Jesus said to the religious leaders? You're not going to dine with me in my kingdom. Implied there are some who will dine with him in his kingdom. When Jesus was in the upper room, he said in Luke 22, verse 16 and 18, I shall never eat it. Speaking of the bread and the cup, I will never eat it. And I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Implied that all of you who know Christ will one day celebrate grand communion in glory. He goes on to say in verse 30, and just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, just picture yourself there at the most beautiful table you've ever seen. Which is the most elaborate tablecloth and utensils of gold and cups made of just solid gems. Just stretching out into the distance of heaven and saints on both sides, saints of all the ages sitting down and the angels are serving you and Christ is serving you at his table. You may think, well, Jack, isn't that getting a little carried away? No, it's not. In Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9, the saints cry out, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready, and it was given her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. God's going to have you dine with him in his kingdom. He's going to be glad to have you in his presence. It's all true. It's all true. God loves repentant prodigals. He receives them gladly. He forgives them. He clothes them. He gives them authority. He has them dine in his presence. I mean, glory to God. God will spend all eternity lavishing upon you the immeasurable riches of his grace because he is good. That's the hard part for me to understand. That that I would sin against God and then God would call me and draw me to himself and give me the faith I need and grant me repentance and save me by the blood of Christ and then sanctify me by grace. And after he has done everything for me, then he brings me to heaven and rewards me for what he's done. But there is more. God rejoices in the repentant. Look at the end of verse 23. He also says, and let us eat and celebrate. You know, eating and celebrating are two activities which go together. I mean, that's why we do it at birthdays and holidays and, you know, weddings and we're, we're eating, we're talking, we're gathered because of some specific purpose and enjoying each other's company and the food. And to think that this is how God and the angels feel when a sinners repent, that they're, they're celebrating, they're rejoicing. I mean, look back at Luke 15, seven, when Jesus interprets the parable of the lost sheep, he says in verse seven, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who need no repentance. Actually, there there will be no joy in heaven over a self-righteous person. If you don't repent, you won't be there. But if you are there, there's rejoicing when you repent. And if you look down in verse 10 of that same chapter, it says in the same way, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I mean, think about it. Think about what this is saying. It's not saying there's joy in the presence of God and the angels when a whole bunch of people repent. Just one person. One person. And if you've repented... If you've received Christ as your savior, there was a time unbeknownst to you when you came to salvation and all heaven shouted with joy and rejoiced over you specifically. In Hebrews 2.11, 
The author of Hebrews remind us that Christ is not ashamed to call those who repent and believe in him, his brethren. He's not ashamed. And so just as there was a large feast so that all would know the prodigal was received back safe and sound. So all believers of all the ages will gather together at the marriage supper of the lamb. They will be in the presence of Christ and Christ will honor them in the presence of his holy angels. But that's not all. Six, the God regenerates the repentant. Look at verse 24. He says, and for this son of mine was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. What does the father mean here? This son of mine was dead. Well, as far as the parable goes, the son, having wished his father dead, having despised his inheritance, having left to a foreign land was as good as dead. You know, lesser offenses to the law of Moses would have required his death. The Bible exposition commentary says, quote, had the boy been dealt with according to the law, there would have been a funeral, not a feast. Strictly speaking, the prodigal had to remain in exile. And if he ever showed foot back in Israel to anybody who knew him, he would be stoned to death. Returning home would have put his life in peril. If it were not for grace and see, this is something that prodigals who haven't repented yet don't quite understand. All they think of when they think of God is law and judgment. You know how it is. You're talking to somebody at work and all you got to do is mention the Bible or mention Jesus. And what happens? They get this look on their face like, you, you know, you just slammed their fingers in the car door. They're scared. Why is that? Because they know they're a sinner. They know God exists. They know God is holy and they know they deserve to be judged. And so their only thoughts of God are judgment. Because they don't understand the love and compassion and grace and mercy of God. They don't understand that part. John describes the normal response of the unrepentant sinner towards God in John 3.20. He says, everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Is that you? Do you fear that your deeds will be exposed and that's why you're not coming to Christ because God will find out? He already knows. He already knows. Hebrews 4.13 says, for there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He knows. He knew all of your sins before the world began. He not only knows all your sins, he knows all the sins you haven't even committed yet. And yet while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Though we were hostile to God, God sent his son into the world to die for us. And if you're out there thinking, you know, I'm just scared of God. Stop being scared of God. If you don't repent, then be scared. But if you give your life to Christ, if you receive Jesus as your savior, there is no need to fear. You remember what Jesus said in Luke 15 or 532? He said, I have not come to call the righteous, but what? Sinners to repentance. Those are the only kind of people that Jesus saves. There is no one else that he saves. And if you're out there and you're sitting there and you're thinking, I know I'm a sinner, then that's good. Because Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. He's calling you to repentance. And when the father says this son of mine was dead, he's not saying he was physically dead. I mean, the The guy's still walking around. He's talking about him being dead to the family. It's really a picture of his spiritual deadness. It's the same terminology Jesus used earlier in Luke 9. You remember the man that Jesus was giving some examples of people who made excuses for not believing in him. And one of the excuses was, well, let me go bury my father first. Remember that? And the man didn't mean that his father had died and they were in the midst of a funeral and they had to get him in the ground so he could follow Jesus. No. What he was saying is, is my father's old, but he hasn't died yet. 
And as soon as he dies and I receive my inheritance, then I'll be able to follow you because then I'll have the financial means to take care of myself and I won't have to trust in you. I can rely on my inheritance. And you remember what Jesus said? He said in Luke 9 verse 60, allow the dead to bury their own dead. Now that is an impossible statement if you're talking about the physically dead only. I mean, the cemeteries would be very glad to just, you know, deliver the body to the cemetery. All of a sudden, out of the graves pops other dead people who bury their kind. That never happens. But you can have a spiritually dead person bury a physically dead person. He said, well, what does it mean to be spiritually dead? Well, turn over to Ephesians chapter 2, and let me show you Paul says this in Ephesians 2, verse 1 and following. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is spiritual deadness. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He says, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now think about this. You were dead and you were walking. You see that? Zombies. And then he says, among them, we too all formerly lived. He said, well, Paul, come on. Are you schizophrenic here? I mean, come on. Are we dead or were you alive? Alive physically, dead spiritually. Turn over to Colossians, a couple books to the right. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Same concept. Paul says in verse 13 of chapter 2, when you were dead in your transgressions, or sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us and has taken it out of the way and nailed it to the cross. Notice here that you were dead in your sins and then he, that is God, made you alive. Spiritual deadness, you just got to think about physical deadness. You know, just try this sometime. Driving down the road, you see a dead dog along the side of the road. Pull over and say, come here, Poochie. Fetch. Get the stick. Come here. Now, what does that dog do? Nothing. What? It's dead. It's physically dead. And so when you're spiritually dead, you don't respond to the things of God. You just don't come until God, by his grace, brings you to himself. And what do you call that when you're spiritually dead and then you become spiritually alive? I mean, what is that? It's called regeneration. Remember what John said? Describing Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus in John 3, 3. Jesus said, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. That is a synonym for regeneration. Born again, spiritual birth or spiritual rebirth, as some people call it. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away and behold, new things have come. New creature. Different than before, changed, a synonym of regeneration. Right after the text, we just got through reading in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 about our spiritual deadness. Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. It's the same thing he says in Colossians. Made alive. There you go, another synonym. Titus 3, 5. Paul reminds believers, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing and the Holy Spirit. Regeneration. Then he just uses the term there. That's it. To be regenerate. Have you ever... Have you ever, you know, been driving along maybe in the country or maybe out in the desert and you see one of like those really trashed cars that's so rusty. There's really no paint left on it. All the windows are busted out. The tires are rotted off and it's just sitting there. And then some person who has too much time and money (laughs) takes that piece of junk and sticks it in their garage. And then what? If you've got one, no offense. Um, And then what? They begin to regenerate the car. They begin to sand it and weld it and patch it and replace things and powder coat things and rebuild things and re-leather things. And pretty soon the car is like what? New. They've regenerated it. They've taken it towards a dead car and turned it into a live car. That's what God does when you place your faith in Christ. He regenerates you. I want you to turn to Ezekiel 37. If you like science fiction, you will like this. Ezekiel 37. This is a vision that God gives to Ezekiel. Now, at this time... The Israelites were in captivity because they had sinned and sinned and sinned and sinned. And so God sent the Babylonians, took them captive to Babylon. They're there in Babylon. And Ezekiel is the prophet sent, raised up to preach to them while they're in Babylon. And God gives Ezekiel this vision of what he's going to do to Israel. Israel is pictured as spiritually dead. And this is pretty radical. This is a great picture of regeneration. Granted, this is used in a corporate sense of Israel, but it's the same thing. Look at verse 1 of Ezekiel 37. And the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and lo, they were very dry. So picture in your mind here, this valley and there's just a whole bunch of skeletons out there. All they're all broken in pieces and knocked apart. It's just human bones that are very dry. Spiritual deadness is being pictured here. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Oh Lord, you know, And again, he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life and I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied. There was a noise and behold, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. I told you this science fiction and I looked and behold, sinews were on them and flesh grew and skin covered them and there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy the breath, prophesy son of man and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath and breathe on these slain that they may come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they came to life and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, 
They say our bones are dried up and our hope is perished and we are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. That's regeneration. God assembles, reassembles us. You know, Adam and Eve were made perfect and they fell and they were cursed. And all of their children are sinners and cursed. We're like broken down cars, rusty, rotten in the field. And then God calls us by his grace And he transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. He causes us to be born again, to be made alive to Christ, to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. He glorifies us and makes us new. And he does it because he is a good God and he is a loving God. Now, I know most of you here this morning would profess to know Christ. I know most of you are here this morning and you might even be able to recite the gospel. But I would say that there is a good number of you who aren't following the Lord. You aren't reading your Bibles. You aren't praying. You aren't serving. You aren't giving. You're spiritually dead. Regardless of what you profess with your lips, your life denies what you say you are. And I fear for the person who is content at merely coming to church, but who doesn't love the Lord. And love the Lord enough to follow him and serve him and tell other people about him. Is that you? But maybe this morning it's time to become regenerated, to be born again. Jesus died on the cross, was buried and rose again. And if you place your faith in Jesus Christ and him crucified, he will save you. He will adopt you. He will forgive you. He will justify you. He will take your spiritually dry bones and make you now. The Bible exposition commentary did an interesting comparison between Jesus's statement in John 14, 6 and the prodigal. It notes the prodigal was lost, but Jesus is the way the prodigal was ignorant. But Jesus is the truth. The prodigal was spiritually dead, but Jesus is the life. If you don't know Christ as your savior, Come to him this morning, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. God and the angels in heaven will rejoice over you. And if you do know Christ, then marvel at God's love, his compassion and his grace towards sinners. For he is a good God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. And I just pray that all of us who already know you, who love you, Father, that we would all be motivated to serve you more with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. Father, that we would not be idle, that we would not fall into patterns of sin, but we would serve you. Oh, sanctify us more, make us more like Jesus, transform us from one glory into the next as only you can. And for those here, Father, who know that they don't know you, or maybe who are deceived or deceiving us into thinking they know you. Father, may they right now turn their hearts towards Christ. May you grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. May you cause them to be born again, to be made into new creatures, to be regenerated, that they might be transformed and in the future glorified and seated in the heavenly places with Christ to rule and reign with him forever and ever. Father, do this as only as you can for your glory, for your honor, and for your praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.